Mythos Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, and welcome to episode 5 of season 10 of the Thoth Herbies podcast. Today is Sunday, the 24th of September 2023, and it is my pleasure to have you back here on the show where I will present you a view on GRS Mead and C.G. Young. Yes, two very important people, and I will be happy to present you the young Swedish academic Paulina Grafman, who will have a lot of very interesting things to tell us about those two gentlemen and many things around them. So stay tuned, and it's as always my great pleasure to have you back here on the show, and a special welcome to those of you who are here for the first time, and I hope it will be for many times that you will return. Do go to our website www.thoshermes.com T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com There you will find all the episodes so far, 150-ish, over 150 in the meantime, uh, where you have a lot of things to discover, a lot of things to learn, and you can go on all the show notes and find even more links and come contacts and stuff that you will need to get a whole view on the Western esoteric tradition as we try to show it here on this show. And while you're on the website, there are two more things you could do. First, leave me a message, some feedback, either on the contact page or via a voicemail that's built in there. So send me a free voicemail, that would be lovely. And Facebook or Twitter, of course, are also available at your service to contact me, to leave me some feedback. I always like feedback, uh, ideas, criticism, but of course, most I like when you love the show and tell me. Well, then if you love the show, that's the other thing you could or maybe even should do, become a patron. Many thanks to those of you who already are patrons and... Uh, once again, I have to say, we need more of you. We need more of you, and um, to be able to sustain the level of this of this show, uh, we need more of you, and I hope there will be some more in the near future that come on and join. Starting with $1 per episode, you are part of this group of people who support the show. And if you prefer a one-off, well, donation button is there. And I have a new thing there. You can buy me a coffee. Yes, of course, I love drinking coffee, who wouldn't? And, uh, well, that's that yellow button on the homepage now, buy me a coffee. Do buy me a coffee, that would be nice. It's a kind of one-off donation, a small donation as well, and uh, it's a pleasure if you did. Right, we have a lot of things to cover here today in the interview, so I won't be too long here with the intro and go right away into our first musical part. Um, and the music here today, 
for those of you who do not like classical music, I apologize. I know we had already classical music last time and we will have again classical music this time. Well, discover, do discover. I think it's really, it's not the typical thing that you might be used to. We have two composers who are, of course, very much linked to the subject here today. That's why I chose them. And the first of them is Alexander Skryabin, the Russian uh, mostly a composer for piano. He has written one very important piece, which is called Prometheus, which reflects very much the theosophy and the time and all the esoteric tradition of his time and of the time, which is also that of G.R.S. Med and uh, C.D. Young. But um, that piece is unfortunately too long. And so I decided to take a shorter piano piece uh, by him and it's played, and that's the great thing, by the great Vladimir Horowitz. I think people, even people who do not know about um, classical music a lot have heard about Vladimir Horowitz. Of course, here on the show, we cannot see him. He's a wonderful guy. I think the recording, when he made that, he must have been over 80. And you can see the video of that and also hear him talk about the piece on YouTube. And exceptionally, I will in the notes for the music also link that YouTube video because, yeah, just go and watch him play that piece. That is quite amazing because it's horribly difficult. Even Horowitz says it's really, really difficult. And, um, well, you can hear it, but it's also a piece where Skriabin, the composer, wanted to show not only his composer skill, but his knowledge about gnosis and theosophy, etc. The piece is called Verse la Flamme and uh, played by the incredible Vladimir Horowitz, this piano piece by Alexander Skriabin. Enjoy!
The incredible Vladimir Horowitz playing Verse la Flamme by Alexander Skriabin. And once again, do go on YouTube, follow the link in the show notes and watch the video. It's incredible. Right. Um, you know, sometimes you make really interesting discoveries, discoveries when you do what I do, like producing a podcast. That's what I like about it. It's, it's always new. You always have new things to discover. And um, well, so I discovered when researching on the internet, a young woman, an academic from Sweden by the name of Paulina Grufman. And we're going to hear her here today. She was actually uh, also speaking last this summer on ESSWE9, this biennial conference of the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism, for example. And she has published quite a number of papers also on Academia EDU. I will link some of them to uh, on the on the website on the show notes because it's really uh, highly interesting what she has to say. Uh, some little uh, texts uh, about the music I will have all th that we hear today. I will also have commented by her in the show notes because she um, already inspi also inspired me to look for that music. Uh, so a very, very interesting young uh, academic. She's a PhD candidate in the history of religions at University of Lund in Sweden. And her research surrounds Cambridge classicist, occultist and early historian of ancient religion, GRS Mead. And um, she wrote, writes her thesis on him uh, about his role on the, in the Theosophical Society. Right. So, well, uh, Really, really interesting um, talk we had, and I hope you're going to enjoy it. Um, as I said earlier, I will not keep you for too long. Just a few words uh, about GRS Mead. Um, of course, most of us, we know his fragments of a faith forgotten. But there are some really highly interesting other texts that are a little less known, like the three volumes on Thrice Greatest Hermes, or a Mithraic ritual, from the, uh, which is a very important piece, selected words of Plotinus that he uh, translated and published. The Doctrine of the Subtle Body is my personal, well, not favorite, but one of the favorites. So he is really somebody that we should not only know, like we sometimes do, by that one and single book, which is The Fragments of a Faith Forgotten. So um, do discover him, and of course, that he encountered in some way or has influenced also C.G. Jung. Um, that's a really interesting part of this discussion we have with Paulina here today. Well, hear her by yourself. Let's go to Lund in Sweden and talk to Paulina Grafman. Here comes the interview. And today on the Thoth Hermes podcast, we have a young academic from Sweden here to talk to us. And I'm very happy and excited to greet Paulina Grafman here, or Grufman. I don't know, as a Swede, you pro probably pronounce it differently than the English world. Uh, good evening, Paulina. It's great to have you. And it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on Thoth Hermes. And you pronounced my name uh, just fine, by the way. <laughs> uh, okay, so so in the English way or in the Swedish way? What do you prefer? Um, the the first way you pronounce it, I think, sounds 
Okay, Graf, Grafman is good. Okay, good. Because you listeners, you should remember that name because I'm sure that this young lady will be around for quite a bit. And she is working in a field as an academic that interests a lot of people here on the Thought Hermes podcast. Um, religious studies, I think, is called the main field, but you're specialized in esotericism, in occultism. You're going to tell us all about that now. So give us a, a bit of your background before we delve in our main subject here today. Um, give us a bit of your personal background, who you are and what brought you also to the study of those subjects. Sure. Yes. Um, so first of all, just again, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm very excited to uh, be here and to discuss my research and my um, some of my research findings so far. Um, I'm uh, currently a PhD candidate at Lund University in Sweden. Um, prior to that, I took my master's degree at Stockholm University. Uh, also focused on esotericism and also focused on the topic of today's um, podcast, which is um, GRS Mead, um, who was a, an occultist and a theosophist. And I'm sure many of your listeners um, recognize this name. Um, Absolutely. So um, when I did my ma master's degree, and the history of religions at uh, Stockholm University. I was supervised by Egil Asprem, who is another uh, scholar in esotericism that has worked on uh, several different esoteric traditions and esoteric currents. Um, and my, the reason I came to find interest in the field of esotericism um, was actually through reading Carl Gustav Jung uh, when I was much younger. Um, and I wanted to approach the subject matter of many of his um, theories and ideas from a more religious studies, historical uh, point of view. Um, and to find more about many of the topics that he discusses in his um, psychoanalytic uh, uh, books and lectures. And that brought me to the concept of gnosis or gnosis, um, this uh, Greek term uh, that has a long history, <laughs> um, but that mm -hmm. has gained a lot of currency within esotericism and occultism. Um, and I wanted to find a way to historicize use of, gnos of gnosis in, in esotericism that goes beyond Gnosticism proper um, or the historic Gnostics. And it was actually my supervisor, uh, Egil, who um, recommended that I look into GRS Mead, since Mead was um, not the only occultist at the time uh, of the late 1800s and early 1900s to, to use this term, but he was, uh, he played a pretty big role in sort of bringing this term to, to popular um, knowledge and also to develop it conceptually and to um, 
just sort of uh, bring more people to awareness of the history of um, gnosis and, and some of the different ways that it could be understood. Right. So we have quite a big field to, to cover here tonight because, I mean, you you already said m much of it. C.G. Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, of course, and his also his relationship to what he learned from probably J.R.S. Mead. You're going to talk about this to us here today. Um, but also, just, just before we got, get into the topic, you explained it, yes, but it's rather... I would say it's rather extraordinary and rare that a young person like you in her studies would delve into occultism and esotericism, isn't it? Uh, do you feel that is, this is a field that is developing? Is it also because acad the academic world has opened more towards that field in the maybe last 10, 15 years also? Thanks to a few people who were also on this podcast. Uh, I mentioned Walter Hanegraaf to you before we started the recording, who was here on the show. So what was your deep motivation besides having read Jung and besides having had a, a master for your thesis and for your studies who, who, who also, if I understand well, encouraged you to go into that direction? Um, so the, the motivations behind wanting to study esotericism was one yes definitely the fact that the field has developed a lot in the last i would say 20 years um it has not always been a very common um orientation in within the history of religions or within the uh within religious studies generally um and it's only since Uh, the 1990s or the late 1980s that it started to become accepted in academia to actually do historical work on esotericism. Um, but in a way, that's not the whole truth because it's also a, a, a theme that you can see when you look at the Eranos scholars, which is another right. thing we will probably return to. I hope so. Um who were a group of academics from different fields that met in Ascona, uh, Switzerland, uh, between the 90, early 1930s, and they still meet today. Um, mm -hmm. But the sort of golden age, uh, some people have it, uh, would be probably between the 1930s and the 1960s, which is also when uh, Jung was um, part of the Ronos milieu. Mm -hmm. And, um, sorry, I think I got, uh, lost in trying to answer. No, no, you're just your personal motivation. So, um, why did you suddenly say, um, okay, this is what I want to do? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I had a, I had a long, time doing other kinds of, of work uh, outside of academia and outside of um, the sort of the study of religions. Um, and the, 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 the fact that I read Jung when I was like 15, 16, it really actually clung to me. Um, and it, it was something that I, I would just have at the back of my head and, and, um, 
after having worked as a, uh, a teacher in, in, in school, um, mm-hmm. elementary school for, for some time, I felt that I wanted to pursue it, pursue it more. Um, and, um, that was, I would say my, my main motivation was oh, curiosity right. and having been very interested in, um, religion for a while, uh, turning to theology when I first started studying, um, uh, but finding it not the right, uh, path for me personally. And then realizing much later that it's other ways that you can also study religion, uh, within academia that Christian theology. Mm -hmm. And in, in Stockholm or in Lund university, are you, the only one or is there a whole group of students who go into that field or are you a bit of a solitary there? There's actually uh, quite a vivid um, group uh, or atmosphere uh, with several people that have done work on esotericism. uh, Mm -hmm. And I would say in general, at the Swedish universities, there's been quite a few scholars um, that has done the work and that have been very important. Henrik Bogdan, you mentioned before, for instance. He was on the show as well earlier. Exactly. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and he's, Mm -hmm. um, of course, very important in the development of uh, the field of esotericism and as well as Egil Aspem as well. And um, yeah, I would say most Swedish universities have at least someone doing something uh, related to esotericism. Um, yeah. But my focus on specifically on Mead and his sort of, and we'll get to that more later on, but uh, I would say I'm, I'm, I have a slightly different approach than some of, of my, my colleagues. Um, mm-hmm. We have uh, uh, Olivia Sevan, who has done work on contemporary esoteric um, groups and movements. Mm-hmm and uh, who just finished her uh, PhD. And uh, also Johan Nilsson, who has done some work on uh, actually on theosophy and um, occultist uh, sort of reception of uh, East Asian um, religious ideas and, and uh, practices. And also Paul Linyama, who has done some work on Gnosticism. And yeah, yeah so there's... We do have a yeah, quite a group, yeah, 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 yeah. I know your personal take on that. Um, you you told me before, so you are uh, an academic. You're not a practitioner yourself. Um, there is always that discussion within and without the academic world about this. Of course, people who say you cannot do academic study on the subject if you are too involved. Others say, how can you do studies without being involved? So there is always that little little uh, uh, discussion going on. Um, how do you see that? Uh, how do you personally, what's your take on that? Is it important to separate things or can it also work the other way? Uh, just, just for interest, what, how do you see it? Not, we know what you do, but I mean, what, what do you think about the other discussion? I think it's, um, it all depends on what you're interested in finding out. Um, mm. and I see myself primarily as a historian um, Mm -hmm. with religion and in this case more focus on occultism and esotericism as 
something that I want to historicize and, under, and, and sort of put in dialogue with other uh, things that have happened throughout history. So um, for me, I think some distance is important, uh, not in my personal belief system or in my personal practice, if I had one, uh, but rather in when I do my work, it's important to um, focus on the primary sources and mm. um, use, you know, uh, some some form of uh, critical uh, evaluation of the primary sources and and um, as well as secondary sources. Um, but I don't see it as a problem at all to do work as a practitioner of any religious denomination mm. or esoteric um, orientation. If you're interested in looking at something that as an historian, you maybe cannot do. So to me, it's it's really up to the subject matter that you're investigating. There are pros right, and cons right. to both um, ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely with you on that. Otherwise, I say, um, well, with a bit smile, of course, but you couldn't go to church when you study theology if you if you had really to separate <laughs> separate all that. So, so I, I'm, I'm I'm absolutely with you. It's important to stay the academic in your brain and in your mind when you work on the subject that you treat. Absolutely. Um, well, then, uh, Paulina, if you if you are okay with that, let's start with J.R.S. Medge, baby, um, because I'm sure most of our listeners here know, of course, not only the name, but many of them probably have read especially that, well, probably most famous of his works, the, the, the Fragments of the Face Forgotten, as it is called. And um, tell us a bit about him, what we should know about him, who he was, where he originated from, and uh, all that is important to know about him. Sure, yes. Um, so Mead was born in 1863 um, to a, uh, a family with military ties. His father was a colonel and in the British Army. And he came from a rather well-off family. So he had the um, opportunity to go to boarding schools Um He studied at uh, one of the, the, the foremost and oldest uh, boarding schools in Britain at the time because he was from, from Britain, from London. Um, mm -hmm. And he later went on and actually studied at St. John's Cambridge um, and took a bachelor's degree in classics, which mm -hmm. is uh, quite important to mention here. Um, when I'm not going to give the full chronology of his life here, but uh, just so uh, listeners know that he was actually a trained scholar uh, as well as a, a theosophist and a more, more broader uh, an occultist. Um, because in, in, for, for many people that know uh, his work on, you mentioned Fragments of a Faith Forgotten, for instance, which is his study of uh, Gnosis and uh, in its hermetic and Gnostic forms and um, the religions and religiosity of ancient Egypt and, and, and ancient Greece, etc. Um, and those were all things that he sort of came to know um, actually through his study at Cambridge. 
Um, okay. He later came to develop all of all of these areas uh, in in many ways. Um, but he he uh, before uh, becoming a theosophist, he was uh, he was actually more sort of uh, resting on this academic um, foundation. Uh, and the reason I mentioned this now is because not everyone knows that he had a classics degree. Um, it, there's been a tendency in the field of, uh, of Western esotericism and the study of esotericism to give this, this sort of picture of me as uh, someone who was an amateur scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A term that's not always intended to be derogatory, but it's it, of course, carries those connotations as well. Um, I don't think it's... Um, it, to, to an, an amateur isn't necessarily someone who's bad at something. It could be someone that it just lacks the sure. official institutional uh, affiliations. Mm-hmm. But in Mead's case, um, it's quite important to mention this because not only before he started uh, his career within the Theosophical Society, which he did from the 1880s and forward, um, he he also held several memberships in academic learned societies, such as the Royal Asiatic Society of Great Britain, right. Ireland, which is, of course, a very uh, renowned, um, perhaps the most renowned Orientalist um, academic society. Uh, even mm-hmm. till t- today, it's still uh, thriving and um, has uh, a, a lot of very important uh, Orientalists have been members there. Um, and so he was a member there, for instance, from the time he was a theosophist. And then when he left the Theosophical Society, which he did in 1908, um, he continued to be a member in, until uh, pretty much until he died in the 1930s mm-hmm. or 1933s. Um, but just to backtrack a little bit. So, yes, so he went to Cambridge he uh, could I just ask you one little thing? Could it be that this, say, a little bad mouth thing that happens to him later on also had to do with the fact that he left the official part of the Theosophical Society, that, of course, those people who he left were not quite happy about the whole story that uh, we come into that a bit later. But could it be that that maybe was used to make him less important by saying, well, he is not an academic anyway? Could that be? Or, is, or am I wrong? Uh, it's possible. Um, definitely that there are some uh, politics within the Theosophical Society and the right. Theosophical Milieu that um, there there have been some ba- bad-mouthing um, due to that. But when I'm thinking of um, the use of the term amateur scholar, it's mostly coming from academics today working on uh, Mead. Um, mm. And it's been in the context of trying to um, uh, paint a sort of picture of how uh, the study of Gnosticism came to develop in the early 1900s. Right. And of mm-hmm. course, Mead was very important for that uh, development. Um, many of his, I mean, his um, translation of Pistis Sophia, for instance, was the first English translation. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. it was read widely by many, uh, both 
of course, many theosophists because it was published by a, a theosophical publishing house. But it was also read by a number of other individuals um, because it gave a rather um, sympathetic, but also uh, also scholarly, but overall just accessible uh, way to to um, learn about the Gnostics that didn't have the same kind of um, put, didn't put the same kind of barrier up for those who that lacked. Um, for instance, uh, academic training. So, and I think that's a big merit that he had, that he was creating probably for the first time, as you said, the knowledge about Gnosis and Gnosticism to a broader public, which went far beyond the Theosophical Society, which it was intended for, maybe. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's been a few scholars that have done work on and the study of Gnosticism at the turn of the, uh, so between the late 1800s and uh, the beginning of the 1900s. And some of them have pointed to the importance of need in this context, um, but often then concluding that it was a problem that me was a theosophist when he wrote, for instance, the translation of Pistisophia, <laughs> just uh, because he was a, uh, and here's when the term amateur scholar comes in. He was an amateur scholar, so he didn't have academic training, which is, first of all, wrong. He, he did have training. Um, and, and secondly, uh, because he was a theosophist, uh, some have argued this sort of shown through in his portrayal of the Gnostics. So it's a theosophical understanding of, of Gnosticism and not uh, an academic uh, historical understanding. Um, and yeah, as you can probably tell, I'm a little bit critical of this way of, of, um, yeah. <laughs> of um, yeah. Understand making that. him appear. Uh, may I interject something and then ask you a particular question before we carry on with Ned, but keep it where we were but 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 uh, the interjection is i i often get the impression that you know it's so easy later on to say well you know meet or same with castaneda well you know just as an example i mean you could name others right and well my whole generation read castaneda and probably like many i was brought into esotericism by castaneda i know it's not all what it seems to be, but it helped me to find my way. The same is true with Mead and with many others. So it's, it's, it's a bad thing to later on say, well, that was bad. That was, it was too theosophical. Well, but many people found their way because he wrote that book, right? And, and uh, I don't know what's your take on that, but uh, I think we should be a little less arrogant hundred years later um, by knowing everything better, shouldn't we? <laughs> I, I agree with you. And I think it's, it's, yeah, it's not necessary to, um, to say that someone is, it, because this ties back to what we started talking about in the beginning of um, whether it's important to keep distance from what you're studying or not. Yeah, and my, it, from my understanding, it's not necessarily important to to separate, uh, I, and I don't think it's always e even possible to come to some sort of 
objective understanding of yeah. things yeah. and how they really are because it's so it's up to each person to define in a way absolutely um, it's absolutely so i um i don't really share that approach that some yeah. other scholars have yeah yeah uh, and now the question for you before we carry on um the term gnosis or gnosticism and even those two are not always taken exactly for the same thing of course but gnosis or gnosticism, gnosticism both can be quite are quite a wild field you can talk about valentinian or sasian gnosticism you can talk about the gnosticism of the Qatars. you can talk about gnosis as knowledge of the supreme being if you wish whatever um not whatever but i mean it's a wide field when we talk about gnosticism and gnosis here in the context of Mead and his work could you give a a, a kind of definition of which which gnosis we are talking about here sure i can i can give uh i can try um it's it's not completely easy because Mead, um, in the context of Mead, he he actually develops his understanding of, of um, Gnosticism over the course of his career. Um, but uh, I think it might be helpful in order to form a sort of definition to look at the particular... Um, texts and groups that he emphasizes and studies. Mm -hmm. And um, so in the context of Mead, Gnosticism in his early career is in many ways synonymous, more or less, with the wisdom religion, which is another another word for um Helena Blavatsky's understanding of theosophy as yeah. the yeah the foundation for or the the, the all, all the the truths from all the religions and philosophies across the world and Mead was Blavatsky's secretary uh, the last right. couple of years before she died. Uh, many people don't know this. It's important to say that. Yes, absolutely. So they worked very closely. Uh, they didn't always have the same stance on things, but they were, of course, very allied uh, during the time that they worked together. Uh, and I think Mead was very sort of informed by uh, her theosophical understandings as well. So at first, he starts out with a very broad definition of, of Gnosticism, uh, of it being any sort of um, group. It's not just a specific, like the Valentinians or the Scythians, but it's it's it incorporates um, anyone that is uh, searching for for Gnosis uh, through through. Um, theoretical study or through practical work or through um yeah i would say it's 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 um it's a it's a catch-all term for wisdom seekers um so yes yeah, so a very personal thing actually gnosis for each person who 
is looking for wisdom. It is a very personal definition in a way, right? Right. Um, there's one thing that mm. that is uh, that seems to be somewhat crucial, and it's the idea, which is also connected to theosophy, uh, the theosophy of Blavatsky, and that is uh, ethics. So uh, living an ethical life and being ethically informed, um, which is also something that is personal and it's not something that he offers a definition for. Um, but that is, that is part of this sort of spectrum of uh, the, the, no, the different noses uh, that different people can mm -hmm. reach. But, but I would say ethics is important for, for that uh, early stage of his uh, defining and writing about gnosis. Right. Um, in fragments of a faith forgotten and Pisces Sophia and so mm -hmm. forth. Um, and I would say then later down the line, uh, if we fast for forward a few years, Mead is increasingly interested in more specific groups uh, and specific individuals. Um, and also in separating the modern spiritual seeker from the historical um, groups that could be called the the Gnostics of the ancient uh, the, or the ancient Gnostics. Mm -hmm. um, and at this point, he is also starting to craft um, a very early definition for Gnosis as the, the, the way or like as a, a synonymous with higher knowledge um, mm -hmm. and higher knowledge that is not just, um, again, it's, it is, it's personal, but it's also, it encompasses a lot of things. Uh, it encompasses, for instance, the, the sort of coming together of different kinds of knowledge the knowledge of, you could say the knowledge of the hand, the knowledge of the heart, the knowledge of the, the head, sort of coming together in a way that is, um, uh, it, 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 it's similar in a way to some of Carl Gustav Jung's ideas about um, individuation for those that know uh, this, this concept. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And we can, we can maybe return to that as well, because it's, it's interesting, but, um, he, so I would say he, he sort of loads gnosis with more and more connotation as time passes, um, and, and starts to also set up, um, an idea of gnosis as something that you can reach through different stages, um, right. uh, rather than as something that is, um, maybe, something that you define yourself and that you can reach in your lifetime, it becomes more of a, of a stage process, but also in a, in a way, a state, um, that has some parallels to maybe the state of, uh, or the understanding of, of Nirvana as a state, uh, in within Buddhism, um, and he also proposes at, at uh, I think it's it's like the mid nineteen hundreds in in a paper that he presents. He proposes that gnosis should also be adopted as a 
by those working as academics um, in the field of okay. comparative religion as a as a term that can be used as a conceptual tool for understanding um, religions past and present. And here is where the 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 sort of academic the the scholar mead comes in again um and makes way for gnosis as both the personal but also something that you can sort of use in order to better understand history yeah yeah. If that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you. Um, if I'm not wrong, the Fragments of Faith Forgotten is about from that time, the mid 1900s, right? The, the first edition. Uh, the first edition is, um, if, I'm, if I'm not fully um, mistaken, I think it's from 19, uh, 1900. So it's, it's okay. an, one of the early. A bit earlier. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the earlier works in, in any case. And then I, 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 there I think he says also in the subtitle something about the two, the, the Christian origins or whatever. So it's it's probably mostly based around that early, this early two centuries after uh, after uh, after Christ, right? So when, when, when those early Christian Gnosticisms became... See, was he, I, don't, I have no idea about that, was he uh, one of the first or the first to coin that term Gnosticism in that context? Or was that something that was already common in, in at least academia then or in, in, in people who, were, who worked around that? Do you know that? And viewing uh, Gnosis in the context of... of of Cesians and Atidians, what we what we mentioned earlier, um, so the early Christian sects, so to speak, uh, uh, was he the one to coin that term for them, or was that the term that was already used when he wrote those books? Um, it was, yes. Um, so it goes back to, uh, and I'm, I must say also that I'm not an expert on. Um, specifically on Gnosticism, but um, I, I, Arrhenius of Loyola uh, in his, uh, uh, in his sort of um, overview of the different uh, schools of Gnosis. Yeah. I think that is um, much, much earlier than, yeah, 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 yeah. That. Mm -hmm. um, okay, oh, he he coined the term, so to speak. Then, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it, of course, he wrote about it in a very polemical way and had a polemical yes. um, reason <laughs> for doing so. Uh, whereas me was um, a lot more sympathetic and um, sort of absolutely. Yeah, it's very funny that we have most of our knowledge about that time. Seem to have most of the knowledge of that time from the person who was very much against it, and but take that knowledge as something. At least those who are interested, positive. So, so it's very. That's a very, very strange, very strange fact indeed. She's such a source of knowledge. It's quite incredible, and I hope you enjoy as I did doing the interview. So let's go into more classical music. Yes, of course, I promised that. So Gustav Holst. I don't know how many of you have heard of him. He is a well, rather famous British composer, though. He lived uh, from 1874 to 1934, so was also in the middle of 
the high time of theosophy and of course he was also living about at the same time of GRS Mead and um, he is one of the few I believe or at least of I know of a few composers well-known classical composers who very much were inspired by theosophy so it seems to be quite interesting to have him also a voice. We had him here already with the planets. Everybody knows holds the planets, I'm sure. But today we played two excerpts from a piece called Hymn of Jesus from 1917. And it is based on Mead's translation of that hymn. Um, I will also uh, post a copy of a little uh, a text that uh, our guest Paulina here has written on the piece. Um, you will find that in the show notes. So two excerpts now, not immediately now, one excerpt now before we continue with the interview and then the second excerpt from that hymn of Jesus by Gustav Holst immediately after the end of the interview. Right, and um, after that, of course, as usual, I will come back after the interview, after the second piece of music, uh, after the interview, I will come back and tell you about next week's show. And you're going to like also that, I hope. But first, Gustav Holst, first excerpt, the beginning, actually it is from the hymn of Jesus. And then we hear Paulina again. And after the end of the interview, a second excerpt from somewhere in the middle of the piece, hymn of Jesus. It's too long to play the whole. It's over 20 minutes. That would be too long. But two excerpts here and... After that, the end remarks. Enjoy.
you just mentioned that later on he 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 widened his approach and uh, when you say that what comes to my mind is i think one of his to me to me personally one is of his most stunning texts and books the doctrine of the subtle body in western tradition um and it is mostly the subtitle that that i find intriguing when it is an outline of what the philosophers thought and Christians taught on the subject. So what do Christians teach on the subject of the subtle body? I, I, so can you tell, do you know about that work a little more? Can you, can you say something about that? Is that what you also meant when you said he widened his approach and he went into other fields? It's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned this work in particular because, um, it's it's actually um arriving in um so i think it's from 1919 uh if mm -hmm. i'm not mistaken and um i think so yes mm. the an interesting thing about this work is that by the time that need uh is writing this book he has taken up a lot of interest in um psychical studies or uh mm -hmm. what is yeah, today uh, it has sort of branched out and it's called uh, parapsychology sometimes. But um, Mead was very interested in in soul uh, soul survival after death, and this is one thing that has not been. I wouldn't say it hasn't really been um, discussed very much in in the little research that exists on on mead uh from from within my field at least and um in 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 that particular book um i think what is hap what is sort of occurring there is he is he is wanting to um see the, how he can trace uh uh genealogy or like an uh, a tra trace how this concept of soul survival um, has looked in in the Western tradition, um, mm. and and also compares it with how other parts of of the world have sort of understood the soul, right? Which lends right. his 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 work both a early psychological sort of um angle to it um mm -hmm. which i think also segues a little bit into some of the work that i've been doing recently um on his on mead's uh relation to psychoanalysis and called gustav young in more general uh right or in particular i mean and um it's also it's it also shows that there is a a certain interest in Mead's corpus or in in Mead's sort of work at this time to consider Christianity from um in a way that breaks quite a lot with the earlier um school of theosophy that Blavatsky was um, sort mm -hmm. of propagating. Uh, just for reference for those that are not um, maybe focusing on theosophy in their own practice or in their own readings. Um, 
Blavatsky, uh, who was, of course, one of the founders of the Theosophical Society, was very um, critical of uh, the Christian church. Um, mm-hmm. she, she did have an interest in the Gnostics that she might have uh, gotten from um, from Mead, some of it, and some of it from from other Neoplatonist um, scholars and uh, friends of hers. Um, but Mead, um, Mead is uh, showing in the in the late in from like 1915 and and until his death that Christianity is becoming something that is he is embracing more and more. Um, mm-hmm. So. In that way, you could you could say that he is is actually quite similar to some uh, some other people that broke off with the Osavi to form um, the Christian esoteric groups such as uh, Anna Kingsford and um, right. yeah. Right, right. Which probably created also part of the tensions with Andy Besant later on, and 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 his part departing from the official part of the Theosophical Society. He was part of that. What they called the inner circle; those twelve people who kind of were leading the society. And J.R.S. Mead, he was a member of that group, right? Right. I think he even met he even met his wife in that group, I believe. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that group, uh, the inner group of the. Which curiously was uh, an external association to the Theosophical yeah. <laughs> Society, even though it sounds like it's... Um, Absolutely. And he was also the, the editor-in-chief, I believe, of the Lucifer magazine they, they, they produced at the time, right? Um, yes, he was, uh, he was co-editor for some time together with Annie Besant. And then uh, he took over the editorial ship of Lucifer and changed the name to the Theosophical Review. I was oh, yeah. of that exactly. until um, he left the Theosophical Society. Altogether, yeah, yeah. We should once pronounce his name fully. Everybody calls him G.R.S. Mead. Um, I think it's George Robert Stowe Mead, right? That's, that's his name. And Stowe, if I'm not wrong, was the, his mother's maiden name or whatever that's what i read somewhere i don't know i just looked that up i don't i didn't know it because everybody calls him even on the books it says jrs mead never never his first name is fully written out funny enough yeah yeah interesting and somehow um underestimated personality i think Uh, would you agree i agree yes um i think it's uh, stems from both this the fact that he left the Theosophical Society. Uh, there's there's um, quite a quite a lot written on um, some main sort of characters within the Theosophical Society, but Mead has not been one of those that have gained so much attention, mm-hmm. uh, except for in the pages of the Theosophical his- History. Um, journal uh which has um focused more on me right. i would say um but there it's not always in um sort of um discussions together with other uh researchers working on uh, the history of esotericism um right but i think it's because one meet left the theosophical society so for those focusing solely on 
theosophy he only sort of existed between <laughs> between the time that he was became a member and then stopped yeah. being a member and uh but he of course had a long career after that as well and also formed his own group that had a lot of uh, very important members and has contributed. Do you know what was the name of that group? Do we know? Uh, yes, the Quest Society. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, sure, sure. Which he formed yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. right um, after leaving the Theosophical Society. Um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. it had, in the beginning, some 500 members. Mo many of them, if not most of them, were actually from the Theosophical Society. Right. That, all, that had left for the same... Kind of a break-off of the Theosophical Society, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. so it was mm -hmm. the same mm -hmm. sort of a rationale behind why they all left, um, uh, which was a lot of in inter-theosophical politics. Um, yeah. <laughs> several, several. That's it. That's it. That's a separate episode, yeah. I believe. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so he formed the Quest Society, and then um, they published, or he published as an editor, the uh, the Quest Accordly Review, which was a more. Mm -hmm. It was a. I would say we would. You could both say that it was a an occult uh, magazine, but it had. Um, more essays and uh, contributions by uh, those that had institutional affiliations with universities um, right. than perhaps the, the Theosophical Review and Lucifer. Although, of course, many of the members of the Theosophical Society also had um, bachelor's degrees or MA degrees. And, sure. Um, sure. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, sorry, I think I lost my train of thought a little. No, no, no that, that's fine. Uh, I have a question for you. You mentioned the slight parapsychological um, aspects at some point later on in his in his way. Um, that was, of course, a big time in in England where. Mostly in England, spiritism also became very com well, common. Is maybe the wrong word, but very uh, something that that uh, a certain elite liked also to do. And one of the most famous um, personalities who who was in that was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Not so many people know about that. And um, do you know if if Mead had also anything to do with spiritist uh, societies at the time, or was that something completely strange to him? I know, I know that Mead definitely attended seances. Um, mm -hmm. I've not been able to locate any clear connections between him and any spiritual group, uh, like being, right. having a membership in, in any such society. Mm -hmm. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if he had been, um, and there is so much, um, material on me that has not been unearthed yet. So okay. I, I'm finding things, um, almost daily that, um, it just, they just, pop up when you start looking. Which is great for uh, an academic, right? When you when you have a field to plow, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's move a bit on to, to the other guy we have here today, um, Carl Gustav Jung. Uh, they were 
all well they were contemporaries of course 12 years younger i think he was young um did, did they ever meet or is it is the relationship just a, a so to speak a, 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 an, a knowledge a knowledge com, a connection or did they ever meet in person those two people um yes so mead um did uh meet with uh young They met okay. uh, prior to 1919. Um, and I know this because there's been a letter that's been located. Um, I cited it in my master's thesis and I uh, had a feeling that there was probably a lot more to this than just the one letter that I could find in the in Jung's archive. Um, so Jung has a huge archive in Zurich uh, where they keep um, most of the letters that he received. Mm -hmm. There's no such uh, Mead archive. So finding um, letters that Mead received is nearly impossible uh, unless they're kept at um, a theosophical archive. But then they're, mm -hmm. of course, limited to the time that he was a member. Um, so I, I've, I located a, a letter between that that Mead sent to Jung and the contents of that letter uh, show that they did meet um, as Mead speaks about the last time they saw each other and how Jung was fl flourishing in health and they had su such great times together. They had enjoyable talks together. And he also Mead uh, greets Jung as my, my, my dear friend, which Okay. Of course, it's indicative of, of their uh, friendly uh, relationship by that time. And there is uh, definitely a possibility that they have met, had met um, much earlier than just a year prior or the same year that the letter was sent. Um, it's, it's really hard to sort of speculate on exactly from when they first met. But but in terms of Jung's knowledge of Mead, uh, what I do know is that um, Jung cites Mead as early as in his uh, doctoral dissertation in 1910. Um, okay. Which, uh, funnily enough, is a, um, for those that don't know, uh, it's, um, it's, a, it's on occultism and of sort of disproving the various occultist claims, um, but, but by proving okay. in his, in his sort of understanding that yeah. there's a, there are psychological and pathological, um, ways that you can interpret, um, claims made by, uh, spiritualists and occultists in general. And, mm -hmm. um, And it's funny because he cites uh, two of Mead's publications in this uh, um, work and not in a derogatory way. He's not sort of using Mead as an example that he is then criticizing or uh, trying to disprove, but he's using him or I mean, he's, he's, he's citing him uh, to give uh, more credibility to his statements that... Um, occultism is this pathological and 
um, <laughs> problematic mm-hmm. uh, thing that he, he wants to disprove. Um, and just to give some, um, uh, maybe bring some clarity to this, it, it, the fact is that Jung had an early interest in precisely spiritualism, um, several uh, sort of occult um, uh, notions such as clairvoyance and um, telepathy and um, uh, mediumship and uh, similar sort of spiritualist um, uh, domains. And as a young uh, student, uh, when he was doing his bachelor's degree at Basel University, he or Basel University, he um, Jung, that is, he 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 gave lectures um, at the student club about sp- uh, spiritualism and how great it is yeah. or was um, about spirit spirituality or about spiritism. Spiritism, spiritism. spiritism yes. Really. Uh, wow. So mm-hmm. so uh, it it appears that he um, early on he was very interested in this um, in a very sympathetic way, and then um, some ten years later wrote this uh, doctoral dissertation writing about how uh, terribly wrong uh, everything that any spiritist or occultist has ever said. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, but when you read his later work or his his famous work and uh, and also, of course, the book on mandalas and, and, and the book on alchemy uh, or whatever, you don't get the impression that Jung maintained that that position or, 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 I mean, what would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, no. So, um, what I think happened is that Jung received, uh, some advice from his former, uh, um, his former teacher, uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, to, mm-hmm. um, to not make such claims in, in his public work that, that that would ruin his career. And it, it was just overall not a very good path to go down if you wanted to be taken seriously as an academic. Right. Um, that might not be the only reason why Jung turned away from, um, from the different things that interested him prior to this. Um, but it, it's important to remember that a lot of the things that he said publicly in, or I mean that he wrote in his dissertation, for instance, and in later publications, um, those are not necessarily indicative of what he himself believed or did or practiced or, uh, which books he read. Um, and, um, so I think it's not necessary that he, um, fully divorced from his early interests in spiritism and occultism, but actually Mm -hmm. might have maintained that, um, but as a more private interest. He, he also, I think he also wrote about the I Ching, right? And he wrote about ESP, I believe, uh, at some point. And, and of course you could take one of his most famous, um, most famous ideas about synchronicity, you you can, you can, you don't have to, but you can take it as something that is in fact edging the, the paranormal or the occult in a way, depending on how you how you take it. But but 
I uh, I would say that Jung is close to very many occultists at heart, at least. W would you agree? Yes, um, and it's it's uh, it's very interesting uh, that you mentioned this because I think part of the reason to this is that uh, many occultists uh, during the the early 1900s had an interest in what later came to be uh, known as psychoanalysis and psychology. Uh, many theories about the unconscious and many, uh, even, even ideas about gnosis as self-knowledge uh, sort of found its way into Jungian psychoanalysis because Jung read so widely from um, various occult authors, such as Mead, for instance, um, and right. we already touched on the fact that they were they were friends and they met prior to 1919. And Jung cited Mead not just in his doctoral dissertation, but he actually continued to cite Mead throughout his entire career. Okay, and. I've consulted Jung's uh, library or the archive of his library uh, in his historical home, and he owned many, many books by um, authors that you could say were occultists, uh, including Blavatsky, which um, is fascinating mm -hmm. since Jung publicly denounced theosophy several times. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's, yeah, I think it's crucial to see that there's this um, sort of public persona of uh, the clinical uh, the psychiatrist Jung, and then there's the internal life of him, which has also come to be more of a, a, a an in, or an interest for a lot of um, researchers working on uh, the history of psychoanalysis recently when the Red Book was published and also the uh, mm -hmm. Black Book sure. of uh, Jung. Uh, so it's, yeah. it gives um, some some uh, insight into his interest in Gnosticism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I mean, what he says in Psychology and Alchemy when he says that the alchemical symbols have a relationship to the psychoanalytical process, I mean, this is something that that is quite stunning for somebody who doesn't know about spiritual alchemy. But uh, when you know about it, of course, you see it differently. But it's it's surprising that he would then say occultism is, is an illness, so to speak, right? Yeah, I think it was um, right. Right. more of a, a career choice than reflecting probably. his own ideas. Uh, yeah. Uh, probably. Yeah. Um, it's also funny what you just said about theosophy and his stance on theosophy. I'm not a theosophist myself, but, but theosophy seems to be one of the most used and at the same time most rejected by the same people. Um, um, well, I don't even want to call it a belief system, but uh, as a system, just call, let's call it a system. Talk, take Rudolf Steiner, take C.G. Jung, take many others you could name who's, who took a lot of the ideas from Blavatsky and her followers and the people who came after her and rejected them completely but used them. Isn't that strange? Yes, it's, um, it's quite strange, yes. <laughs> I, I yeah. think uh, 
it's it's and it's 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 important to remember this that a lot of the people that sort of dismiss um others they uh a lot of the time you can find that they were actually they read each other absolutely uh, René Guénon was one of those also who, who even wrote a book about how how terrible the theosophical ideas were yeah <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of that was also the sort of competition and um, yes polit- absolutely. Po- politics within the um, different groups certainly certainly definitely definitely um do you know when uh, can you, with that letter and your other knowledge, can you locate in time approximately when Maid and and Jung would have met in what period of uh, of life? That is a that's a good question, and it's something that I would love to have a concise answer to. Um, I have not been able to uh, concretely find from when uh, they first uh, would have met, but I do know. One curious thing, which is that Jung, one of the books, so I could I could mention that as well because I don't think I have, but uh, in in Jung's library today, there are twenty books um, that uh, are written by me or were written by me, oh, mm-hmm. which is quite a lot. Um, yeah, that that's yeah, that's two thirds of probably of all his publications. Yeah, right? exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So. That's yeah, it's and it's more than you know many others have in their yeah. libraries. So so Jung definitely uh, he had a lot of his books, and one of the books uh, Simon uh, Magus from eighteen ninety two inside the book is a stamp from a Theosophical lending library, okay. which is. Very interesting because I it 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 shows that either Jung went to and I have not been able to fully um, sort of find uh, all the the grounds for this this hypothesis, but it's 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 possible that that Jung went to London if the lending library was located in London. I'm not sure because a lot of the lodges had the same approximate name um, and there are different in different times that have the same name, etc. But I think um, it's possible that Jung went to London as early as a couple of years after that book was published and um, loaned it from from this uh, lending library and then it never came back. (laughs) Never returned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, there would be a huge invoice to to Jung's inheritance yes. <laughs> from the library for lending for lending uh, delays. Yeah, interesting. But that show that shows definitely that he had a, a, a great interest into it, right? Exactly. Yeah. If he yeah. also, if he decided to go into this the theosoph- theosophists uh, library library he was yes. so against yeah. them and it's well, that's absolutely funny interesting. Uh, interesting so it's possible that that happened or it's possible that it was mead that borrowed his own book from that library if he was still and a theosophist gave it to at the time 
because then yeah. he would have had access, of course, to the library. Sure. E- easier than than for Jung to, to have traveled mm-hmm. there. Um, and if that's the case, then that also, in a way, indicates that their um, their contact was, it, yeah, some sometime before nineteen hundred. So. Right. So rather in the early years uh, of both. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm not. Which, <laughs> no, no, sure, sure. But which would also sound logical when you then know that that he cites him a lot. So he, it must have been a remaining memory, at least, or maybe even a contact, a regular contact. We don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. I would like to go back to 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 meets works I mentioned in the very beginning of our talk um, that the fragments of, of A Face Forgotten were probably the best known. Uh, I, I I don't know if you agree, but but uh, at least here in the German-speaking world, that has been translated into German. And and, and so it's, it's the best known work. Um, but there are others, and especially two things I would like A to mention uh, next to The Subtle Body, which I find really interesting. But uh, uh, and maybe you also have your take on those two. One is this 11, 11 little booklets that he published with Theosophical Society, the Echoes from the Gnosis. I think at least some of them are really fascinating, like the Mithraic ritual or or the, the hymn of the robe of glory. Or Very hermetic in a way, extremely hermetic, especially the latter. And speaking about hermeticism, of course, the three volumes of thrice greatest hermes hermes which i think is was even published before the face forgotten right um so or around i don't know i don't know exactly you know that much better than me yeah so do you know a bit about those two two works and can you say a few words about them sure um so the echoes from the gnosis series it was uh Maybe perhaps a fun fact. Uh, the it was supposed to be twelve um, books originally, but then due to me leaving the Theosophical Society, uh, the twelfth book never arrived. Okay, well, twelve would make sense in a, in, a, in an esoteric context, of exactly. course. Yeah. So um, and uh, so that's uh, I th- and, and I'm quite sure that's why they. He, st- he ceased public uh, public uh, mm-hmm. publishing them, um, mm-hmm. and those were all almost the entirety of that series. Uh, just sorry to tie back to Jung a little bit. It were were owned by Jung and read by Jung, um, mm-hmm. but and then the the you, me- you mentioned the thrice greatest Hermes, um, yes. which was originally published in three volumes. And I think translated to German as early as in like 1907 or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a rather early work, I believe. Yes, um, mm-hmm. because it's uh, it came out the three volumes. I think they all came out together in the same year uh, in 1906. Uh, the in in English and then translated to, to, into the German. Yeah, a year or two after. Um, Thrice Greatest Hermes, I would say, is a, um, is a more advanced study of uh, hermeticism than, or hermeticism than his Fragments of a Faith Forgotten. Um, mm-hmm. Fragments of a Faith Forgotten is uh, a little bit more um, 
it's it's more of a Gnostic hermetic sort of history, uh, you could say. Whereas uh, the thrice greatest Hermes is more attempting to sketch out in a more sort of linear way um, his findings. Um, And it's a little bit more, um, I would say, uh, he's not, it's not as maybe um, easily accessible as is um, the first book. Just because mm-hmm. it's a, uh, it's more sort of down with historical sort of um, his historical findings and, and citing secondary sources and etc. But one thing that I do have to say about it, I I don't uh, have any conclusive sort of statements on on either of uh, the Echoes from the Gnosis series or or the the um, Rice Greatest Hermes uh, volumes, but I. One thing that's very interesting, I think, is is Mead's focus on ancient Egypt, and mm-hmm. yes, yes, exactly, mm-hmm. of um, Hermes uh, as not as, as as something that sort of begins in ancient Greece, but he 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 locates it in ancient Egypt and and um, within the Egyptian priesthood, um, which is a thesis that has been taken up today by a lot of the leading uh, scholars in the field of uh, the study of hermeticism. Uh, so in a way, Mead was... And, and which is the reason for the name of this podcast. In a ah, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. um, <laughs> yes. um, but it's, it's, it's yeah. very fascinating, actually, uh, that he um, decides, or not decides, but that he has this um, understanding so early mm-hmm. Absolutely. and is... Uh, and and here I must say this is an instance where this notion of the amateur scholar comes in a little bit, because uh, not from my usage or I'm not I'm not designating or saying he that he was an amateur, but um, that book was not received as well when you look at the the reviews by various um, trained. Um, Egyptologists or Coptic top uh, Copticists. I don't know if that's the correct word. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's an instance where Mead is seen as someone who is uh, making making guesses and not uh, necessarily having evidence to prove or the evidence that holds up to historical scrutiny. But it's very interesting then to see how this has sort of turned. A little bit uh, recently, and there are now uh, scholars uh, such as Christian Bull who are looking into it precisely this mm-hmm. this um, Absolutely. idea. Absolutely, I'm glad you're saying that because uh, that was a bit the reason why I mentioned it. And you, we didn't s- s- talk about this before, but I'm glad you, we're on the same on the same on the same boat here, so to speak. Um, we should just briefly mention Eranos because you well mentioned you mentioned it before, but you should just maybe briefly, as we promised, you would speak uh, some, uh, say some words about that. Um, Eranos, a little bit out of context now hearing what you just said, but, but you talked about Jung being there. And can you just um, remind our listeners to what the circle of Eranos uh, is well it is still is sure of course um so um 
from in the early 1930s, uh, uh, there was a rather uh, uh, rich, you could say, <laughs> um, woman called Olga Thrabe Captain. Uh, who um, first wanted to organize together with Alice Bailey, who was a theosophist, uh, summer schools um, at the Skolna, which has a quite long history as a, a place, a meeting place for um, sort of um, alternative um, educators and individuals interested in in alternative ways of, of living and thinking. And um, so a lot of, uh, there, there were a lot of connections to theosophy there as well mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, to esotericism. Uh, but uh, so she decided to uh, start at Eranos as, as, as a place, a meeting place between East and West. Uh, and she wanted to invite important scholars from a number of different uh, areas of study um, and uh, from different life paths to join together and discuss and hold, yeah, hold us a, a, a summer school where mm-hmm. there would be lectures and there would be um, almost like uh, academic conferences where you exchange ideas about mainly spirituality right. uh, and drawing on, again, this uh, theosophical idea of uh, sort of spreading um, knowledge from the Eastern um, lands to uh, to the West and vice versa. And so she started those summer schools and actually invited uh, both GRS Mead and C.G. Jung the same, the first year that she would hold the summer school at Ascona. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, and Ascona is, is in Switzerland for those that. Yes, you're in the south, south in the Italian speaking part there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, but both Mead and Jung actually declined to come. And I think oh, it's really? not because of the motivations or the sort of idea of bringing together people from different academic fields and from different spiritual belongings to, 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 to join together. I don't think that was why they declined, but I think they declined possibly both because of the connection, the very strong connection to late theosophy. Uh, and I say late yeah. meaning, um, because the theosophical society, they all changed yeah. over time a lot and, with the Krishnamurti story and all of that, right? Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But then uh, I think it was like a year later or two years later, Thrabe, uh, uh, she contacted Jung again and they um, f- found more of a meeting uh, space between the two of them uh, and decided that they would uh continue with the with these conferences but make them a little bit more uh f- divorced from the and open right and yeah. and um and jung of course wanted to focus a lot on psychology or psychoanalysis and um 
they would hold these conferences once a year, every summer. And over time, they developed into a very important meeting space for what came, what later came to be the history of religions school. So the, yes. the very academic field that I'm in. Um, so in, they were, um, yeah, they were some of the earliest and, and uh, still today very important uh, voices within the study of religions from the, in the academic sort of university world. Um, yeah. Have you been there or already? To I have, I have not been there actually. I missed a conference that was held. Um, that was like a meta co- conference because it was about Eranos, but it was held at Ascona. Um, right. And I missed it because I had another um, thing that I had to attend to, uh, which is yeah. very uh, unfortunate, but I, I, I would love to go. Um, but I should mention too, that, Many, many, many of the people that would show up later at uh, the Aranos conferences, including Gershom Sholem, uh, the uh, many of your listeners probably know that no introduction needed, maybe, um, and also uh, Robert Eisler um, and Mircea um, Eliade and uh, so many Hans Peter Hacke and, and exactly and and last uh, month I believe he posted it on Facebook Walter Hanigraf who 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 we mentioned earlier he was there lately yeah mm. yeah, um, yeah yeah so so there's been yeah it's uh, it, it's been a very important uh, space for the formation mm-hmm. of uh, of uh, the study of religion and but many of the the people that came to this to Eronos, they were they actually first met at uh the meetings of Mead's Quest Society, which is a very interesting overlap between something that you would think or that some think it belongs to the the history of esotericism yeah. and occultism and the the non-academic uh, or the more sort of uh, practice oriented and then Eranos which is seen in for some people as more this academic and non-practice oriented uh, space but there is a lot of overlap between the two and mm-hmm. it's important uh, and I can tie this back to ancient Egypt actually because um, ancient Egypt and Gnosis are two things that continuously appear within the uh, yearbooks that were produced by each right. the, each summer school had, or the themes that they um, sort of formed the these proceedings uh, books on. Mm-hmm. And so, so Gnosis and very often with the same um, or a very similar understanding of what this means to what Mead had some 40, 50, 60 years earlier uh, appear there. And there's also a, a frequent turning to ancient Egypt and to, and to Hermes and to, um, and to various uh, yeah, Egyptian deities, uh, Egyptian sort of notions of time and space. And um, it's, it's quite interesting um, actually uh, how often there are also 
uh, clear like overt references to me mm-hmm. by well when you when you when you take this what you just said about the quest society and eranos of course this is reflected very clearly in ancient egyptian thinking that religion and daily life or even so, um, science of the time cannot be separate they are part of the same one as the old egyptians would probably see it and in a way that reflects very nicely this link between between quest and and Eranos, right? of course yeah no definitely i agree with you but i think in the general sort of historical uh imaginary of academia there's been a separation made between yeah, these two spaces sure. but as you mentioned it's 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 not necessary to see them as separate but to actually yeah. Yeah. see them as yeah. together yeah. there yeah Absolutely. But with that, we very nicely, because unfortunately we're coming to the end of our talk, but that very nicely closed uh, also our talk, because remember in the very beginning, we were exactly talking about that, about what academia and the practitioner have in common or not. So we rounded it up quite nicely and voluntarily. Thank you for that. Um, Paulina, just before we leave you, um, first, I want to to mention two or three things for our listeners here um, there is of course sacredtexts.com which people can go because all uh, some of Mead's work is there in uh, to be read on screen but um, I don't know if so many people know a site called gnosis.org um, which has a whole um, uh, GRS Meet collection of texts uh, because the most of them are in public domain and they can be read there and go there it's really I will put the link for both of those sites on the show notes but and that brings me to you um, of course also your personal work on academia edu we have a lot of your publications at least partly the abstracts and interesting stuff and also your podcast appearances and uh, others and i really would invite our listeners to go there as well because um, as you could all hear right now Polina has an extremely interesting things to say a great knowledge and um, um, I am sure we will hear more of her later on uh, uh, because uh, she has not even finished her PhD yet what will that be afterwards <laughs> <laughs> Paulina any any plans uh, immediate plans that we should know of um, I'm I'm traveling to to uh to to london uh very soon to do some more archival work uh precisely on mead uh since that is the main character of my uh forthcoming dissertation so i am not done yet with uh digging in the archives and finding more uh, primary sources so um i i would say that's the main sort of thing coming up now and then of course the biography and um w- my dissertation which i think will be in two parts so the biographical part on me yeah and then and with the annotated bibliography also trying to find and include as many of his publications as possible any plans to get that published uh, or yes yeah. that's yeah the plan Great. is to publish uh one the sort of extended biography uh, working on there's the uh nicholas and claire Goodrich clark um edition from 2005 mm-hmm. which i would 
highly recommend to anyone interested in it. Absolutely, which can also be found as a, uh, a link to, to that book on the gnosis.org website I just mentioned. So uh, if you want to find out, go there. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to just take, um, continue off where, where they left and um, bring some more right. sort of um, both bibliographical sources i mean just all of the books mm-hmm. and, and articles that he wrote mm-hmm. uh, beyond the theosophical society and just everything he did right uh, as right. much as i can find and then i will also have my main or other part of my dissertation focused on uh the ernos uh and um history of religion sort of the beginnings of that discipline and its connections to the occult yeah right. and also the connections to between me and jung just sort of building on that a little bit more um but it's a f- couple of years uh, in the making so <laughs> yeah but it, it's certainly worth the wait well thank you paulina it was great to have you thank you for your time thank you for being with us and well good luck for all your projects and um well maybe we'll speak again one day thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure thank, thank you, you.
Gustav Holst, an excerpt from his Hymn of Jesus from 1917 and based on G.R.S. Mead's translation of that hymn. Right, and if you want to know more about that piece of music, uh, do go to the show notes. And you have to go to the show notes anyway, because it's really interesting what you can find there. Right, and I really want to thank Paulina Grafman here uh, because it was a lovely interview we had and many, many things I learned also. Uh, very, very interesting what she had to say. Um, go also on the links that I posted in the show notes to discover her work, to discover her different papers. And um, it's, really, it's really interesting to follow that up. Right, so thank you for being with me here this week. And what is going to happen next Sunday? Well, well, I think many of you will be very happy because I always see when he is on the show that your download figures really spike highly up. So John Michael Greer will be back next week and we are going to speak about... Diane Fortune about John Gilbert and Muni Sadu, three people from about the same period who are are in need to be rediscovered. Maybe less Diane Fortune, she is quite well known, the two others should be better known. We will want to speak about that, that why this is and what fascinated John Michael Greer and myself about those three. Right, so... Thank you for being with us here today. Thanks, Paulina, again for doing this for us. And uh, have a good week. Enjoy the week. Stay safe and take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.